0: Lately, you know, we've been going through this series called Deliverance. You know, it's right here up on the screen, um, which is as we're walking through the book of Exodus together as a church. And in it, we get to learn about how God shows himself to be a deliverer for his people, taking them from slavery, both the slavery like in Egypt and slavery to like these patterns of being in their hearts and setting them free. And I've been loving it and uh, especially we've been this mini-series on the Ten Commandments and it's just like are the Ten Commandments like really relevant for today to find out like over and over again that they are and it's pretty exciting stuff and today I get to wrap that up for us with the last three of the Ten Commandments and here's what they say in Exodus 20. It says you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful uh, for who you are, and I just pray that your goodness would be on display this evening. Through how we worship, through how we interact with each other, through the words that I'm saying right now, through how we're gonna take communion, everything. I pray that it would all work together to show that you're a good God who wants good things for your people. And I just, um, I'm just touched remembering that, so thank you, God. Um, May I be a servant to my brothers and sisters. Help me by your Holy Spirit to illuminate these scriptures and what what they mean for us today, God. Praise in your name, Jesus, amen. So looking at these final three commandments, um, I believe God is calling his people, uh, like I said, from the shift, to shift from like a slavery mindset to a freed person's mindset, right? And in doing so, he's trying to, trying to root out like these underlying predispositions we might have to life, things like selfishness, deceit, entitlement, and scarcity, and he wants to get to the root of those in order to get to something even greater for us, transform us into uh, to being people who are truthful, generous, content, and live in, a, in just an awareness of the abundant goodness of God and how we get to enjoy that every day. And as I was thinking about what to uh, title this sermon, I had a couple thoughts. And the first one was um, Exodus for the rest of us. Um, which was, I was like really pushing for that being like the entire title of this whole series. I was just like deliverance. How about Exodus for the rest of us, uh, which is an obscure uh, you know reference to Seinfeld. You know, in case you don't know, more on Seinfeld later. Actually, um, or maybe I'll call it uh, please won't you be my neighbor? You know, after uh, like crying at Alamo Drafthouse for a while, watching the Mr. Rogers movie. Um, more on Mr. Rogers later too. So. Um, but I landed on a culture of truthfulness and generosity, all right? Because I think this is what God is seeking to make happen in his people. Um, so back to Seinfeld for a second. So after nine seasons of this show, I'm, I'm a big fan. And, you know, I, don't, I know it's not always, like, the best thing to, like, talk to a group of millennials about a 90s sitcom, is, and, like, that's going to be, like, really relevant for everybody's lives. But... Let me set up the story for you. You've got George, Elaine, Jerry, Kramer, the whole gang, and they're hilarious. Everything about their life is awesome. They like live in these hip apartments in New York, and I'm just like, watching, I'm just like, oh, I wish I could have their lives. It's so cool. And then uh, nine seasons of this, and they are like getting into all these antics and hijinks because it's a sitcom, and in that final season, those final few episodes, they have an emergency landing in a small town, and there they're like wandering the streets, and they have a camcorder, like an old boxy camcorder, right? It's the '90s, and they're recording as they're walking around, and they see a guy getting mugged on the street, and this recording captures them as uh, they're commenting, like, about how this guy's overweight and, like, you know, he's just like mocking him, right, as he's being mugged. And this man and the the officials in the area, they actually take in this group of people for violating the law. They were charged with criminal indifference, right? Not stepping in to do something when somebody's getting robbed. And so they're on trial for quite a while. There's all these character witnesses testifying to how these aren't good people. We've got the soup Nazi who comes back, and he's like, "Uh, they closed down my restaurant. Or we've got Babu who was deported because of Jerry, and he's like, he's a very bad man, right? And the verdict comes in and they're found guilty of criminal indifference. And I was like, no, not, not Jerry. Like, Jerry's too funny. Jerry's too funny to be guilty of something. Or like, Kramer's too off the wall, right? George is too George to like be guilty of this. So they're too hilarious to be guilty. And it's a sitcom and for sure, you know, it's, it's a big joke, right? Um, and also I like read deeply into things. You know, I, I thought about this for a long time. And, and I thought, man, this group of people have been found guilty for criminal indifference, for not stepping in as something wrong was happening and doing something about it. And this is what the judge in the trial says. Uh, the honorable judge Arthur Vandeley says, I do not know how or under what circumstances the four of you found each other. But your callous indifference and utter disregard for everything that is good and decent has rocked the very foundation upon which our society is built. I can think of nothing more fitting than for the four of you to spend a year removed from society so that you can contemplate the manner in which you have conducted yourselves. Um, And that phrase, the very foundation upon which society is built, it kind of got to me and I was thinking about it And I was like, so the same group of people who I've been like laughing at for nine seasons and laughing as they mock the people around them and uh, like honestly are kind of screwed up people constantly. In that verdict of being guilty of criminal indifference, I found myself also implicated in the guilt of criminal indifference. And I was like, what good have I neglected to do? And it turns out, yeah, this group of people, they they are found guilty uh, of what in the episode is called the Good Samaritan Law, right, you know, very biblical. Uh, And we'll look at that in a minute, too, the Good Samaritan Law. And I realized, though, in that episode, like, um, I'm like these people and I need help. And this is where I think there's a provision in the Ten Commandments, right? So I think the Ten Commandments, are how God develops his people. That's how he develops his people. And as we've been reading through the Ten Commandments in the broader context of Exodus, which is part of a deliverance narrative, we might wonder, like, how are the Ten Commandments even part of this? How are they part of deliverance? Um, And that's where I'd want to call attention to, like, these prohibitions, you know, don't steal, don't covet. these aren't just God's instruction for, like, uh, you know, stop, stop doing bad stuff or something, like he's some cosmic, like, strict parent or something, uh, some parochial school teacher in the sky, right? Like, instead, he is about instructing his people that they would be developed into a community that can live well together, that can flourish together. And these commandments are part and parcel of that whole project that God has for his people. He wants to bring good things to his people. And in a real way, you know, this group, they are like a, a nation that is being born right now. And here's three observations about the people of Israel. Um, Israel is a wandering tribe of nomads who escaped slavery. Right? Like, just imagine that being you, a wandering tribe of nomads. You don't have a home and you just got out of slavery. It's like a a traumatized people. Second, Israel is called to be a nation of priests. So not only do they come from this, like, enslaved place where they didn't have much at all, but they're called to some, like, big, beautiful vision for their lives. And third, and I think this is where the Ten Commandments hop in, Israel needs order to rebuild their collective identity, right? So this group of folks, like, they, uh, I think they are truly, like, a traumatized group of people, like, being enslaved for generations, right? Um, they, need, they need order and structure to, like, kind of root out some of those things that are, like, getting in the way for them to be even functional together as a group of people, right? Yeah. That's Particularly the ninth commandment, you know, this is about building a nation, right? Um, this commandment to not give false testimony, it's actually uh, clearly in the, in the context of a judicial system, right? So it's while God's giving this commandment, he's saying, like, hey, like, uh, there's laws and also we're going to have to have, like, trials and that kind of stuff. Like, we're going to have to, like, make sure that when we're in trials, like, we take that oath and raise our right hands or whatever to promise that we're gonna give true testimony to people so we don't just throw them under the bus, right? So he, God is up to like a very clear project of like building a nation, building a community, right? And at the same time, I think uh, we can read this and we can still glean some like spiritual significance from this because it's not just about like giving some laws and, and building community. I think it is also uh, a developmental picture, right, a, devel- like a way that people develop. One of the ways I think about this is uh, like uh, telling a kid don't touch the stove, right, because it's hot and you want to keep them safe and whatever, uh, you prohibit touching the stove. But this isn't right for a kid like forever, right? Um, as they grow up, you know, you got to mess with the knobs of the stove in order to like make mac and cheese when you're eight, you know? And, and eventually, like, learn how to poach an egg, right? Which I still can't do. And I had somebody point out to me after uh, morning service that poaching an egg is really easy. And I, I, I still <laughs> don't know how to do it. Man, I, I wish I did. It's an absolute mess every time I try. But that saying, like, there's an incremental developmental process that God has his people in. So first he's saying don't touch the stove. Like, don't steal. Uh, like, don't covet people. Don't murder people. It's like, stop playing with fire, Israel. That's like what he's saying. He's like, just don't do the things that are hurting each other, right? He's prohibiting that stuff. But that's not his only plan, right? Like, he kind of needs to, uh, and I believe this is true, like, he needs to triage a traumatized group of people. Like, these people are bleeding out. Like, there's dysfunction amongst them. And he needs to bring something that will, like, bring some level of, like, solidity or steadiness to a group of people that is, like, just escape of people who enslaved, escaped a a nation of people that were enslaving them and are trying to figure out quick how to live. But it's not just about prohibiting things, right? Like, I think embedded in every one of these commandments that's saying, like, don't do this, if we think about what's the opposite of it, it sets a trajectory for what God does want his people to be doing, what God does want his people to be like, right? So for example, like don't steal, if we just imagine, like what's the opposite of stealing? Well, like giving, generosity, right? Um, so there's a, an embedded trajectory in the prohibition, in the commandment that's like, and, and not only do I not want you to do that, God also causes people to be, like, generous, hospitable, giving people, right? Or the commandment uh, not to give false testimony, right? It's not just about that. It's about, oh, and I want you to be truthful people. Like, I want you to be people who are dedicated to letting the truth win out, letting the truth prevail, right? And on this note, I just want to take a very quick aside. Um, And thinking about the difference between truthfulness and honesty, Okay? Um, When we think about, like, honesty, you know, like, I I feel like if I hear somebody say the words, like, I'm just going to be honest with you. I was just like, I need to brace myself for whatever's going to come next, right? Like, I'm going to be honest with you, right? Like, um, it it actually feels like a little bit of a, like, self-permission to, like, say whatever I want now, right? Um, I'm just being honest, right? I'm just being honest, okay? Um, And... I'm not saying, like, you know, be dishonest. Sometimes we got to, like, say those things, right? But I think there's a way for us to be honest that is still ultimately, like, part of the trajectory of seeking the truth together, letting the truth prevail, all right? So truthfulness, I would say, then, has to do with, uh, like, even things like being open, right? Like, I don't claim to have the one and only truth about this, I'm willing to enter into dialogue and together, as we put our heads together, we are going to communicate and the truth is going to prevail by this, right? Like as we seek God, as we seek the truth, as we reason together, whatever that looks like, right? Uh, So it goes beyond just like, you know, I'm just going to like say my piece, right? To, you know, I'm going to say my piece, I'm going to say what I think. And also uh, there's probably more to this story. Let's be in conversation. Let's learn from each other about this. So that's what truthfulness, is all about. So again, do not uh, give false testimony. It's this bigger trajectory toward, towards truthfulness. And lastly, do not covet, I believe correlates. So, you know, don't covet, don't envy, that kind of thing. Don't be jealous. Correlates to being content, being grateful for what we have. So if the goal isn't simply like not doing this stuff, but actually becoming the types of people who do this stuff, like who are, who are generous, who are truthful, who are content and grateful, it makes me wonder like what gets in the way of that? What gets in the way of us being generous, truthful, content, and grateful people? One that I believe all of these commandments have in common is a tendency towards fantasy. All right? Like not living in the reality of things, disconnection from what's really happening. So, for example, if I steal something, it's my if I like, you know, take this person's stuff, right? It's my unwillingness to live in the reality that that is his and that is not mine, right? Like I'm refusing that reality and instead I'm going to assert, like, this thing, right? It's just living this fantasy, this should be mine. Um, Likewise, uh, if I'm coveting what somebody else has, it's kind of like saying, man, I just really, really want their stuff, right? Like, I really want what they have. Maybe I don't, like, fully uh, get to the point where I take it from them, but at least, like, I wish I had what they had, right? And of course, like not giving false testimony, living truthfully, that's really clear. And this is what Ephesians 4.25 says. It says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. That last phrase I find really interesting. And it's calling to attention the fact that we're really in this together. We're connected to one another. That's just... That's just the reality we live in. That's just what's happening, right? We are connected to one another. So if I'm going to, like, speak falsity over any of you, right, like, it's going to affect me. It's going to affect everybody because we're all connected, right? So instead, we need to be speaking truth over each other, right? Um, And just imagine that, like, for a second, like, a community, like, where, where we consistently are speaking the truth into each other's lives, right? Like speaking truthful encouragement, the words of God to one another. I think that's a beautiful picture. Similarly, I, I think that um, along with uh, a, the problem of like, not uh, living in the reality of things but going towards fantasy, um, we might find ourselves uh, living in a mindset of scarcity with things, like just believing I don't have enough This is rooted in covetousness, so, uh, by the way, covetousness is, it's kind of like a churchy word, like, I don't feel like I talk about, like, coveting somebody, like, in normal life at all. Um, So here's just, like, a quick, simple definition. So to desire what someone else has, including their material possessions, relationships, and character qualities related to envy and jealousy, so... Uh, those three things, it's like about what they have materially, it's about maybe who they are connected to, we could covet that. Uh, we could covet even like character aspects about who they are, right? So um, it could sound both like I wish I had Rhonda's Tesla, right? Like, and I wish I had Rhonda's brilliance, right? I wish I had that character. I don't know who Rhonda is, but I like that name. It could be about wanting her stuff and also about like wanting things, you know, character uh, abilities that she possesses that I don't possess, right? Wishing that I was smart as her, right? Um, Wishing I had her life, right? And what I believe is under this is the underlying sense of entitlement and scarcity that drives us to covet, okay? The belief that I don't have enough. And um, Walter Brueggemann, the theologian and biblical scholar in his commentary on Exodus, he uh, teases this out in like a way that's just so wise and so well put. It's a bit of a long quote, but I think it's just rich, 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 so I'm gonna read the whole thing, so. Um, It's up on the screen and it says, the propensity to covet in our society is enacted through an unbridled consumerism that believes that the main activity of human life is to accumulate, use, and enjoy more and more of the available resources of the earth. An undisciplined individualism has taught us that we are entitled to whatever we want, no matter who else may be hurt. Such individualism, however, is driven by a market ideology based on an elemental assumption of scarcity. If there's a scarcity of goods needed for life, then energy and passion are generated to gather and accumulate all one can. This ideology of scarcity which drives our economy is in the end an act of theological doubt that does not believe that God's providential generosity is finally reliable. This commandment summons the faithful to break with the practice of acquisitive or acquiring individualism and to reject the ideology of scarcity upon which it is based. Thus the commandment requires a massive repentance that is theological in substance but that is manifested economically. Um, I find this this last sentence especially important for us. if we're talking about covetousness, right, the command to covet, right, this is a command about how we, uh, how we handle and manage and direct our desires, right? This is a, a command about our hearts, okay? Um, it's not a command about behaviors in the way that like not stealing is, is like a command like to behave a certain way, right? It's a command about what we desire and how we desire it, right? And this is why the command not to covet requires a a theological and spiritual work to happen, like an internal heart work to happen. Um, That is fundamentally God's work, right, that we get to cooperate with. And yet, it also has uh, economic manifestations. And in a world that is just, like, flooded with consumerism, right? Like, I feel like that's just the name of the game that our, our world functions on. That's, not, that's actually not true of some places in the world. Like, just think about that for a second. There's, like, places that are, like, not focused on acquiring more and more, right? I, that just feels, like, mind-blowing to think that that actually exists somewhere on the planet, right? Like, but these consumeristic, like, Mindsets of like acquiring more. I need to consume more. I need to have, uh, you know, more stuff. I need to have more experiences. You know, I need to be more interesting. Um, is fundamentally like about like living in this mindset of scarcity of like I just don't have enough, right? So maybe if I go on a like yoga retreat in Tulum, you know, that's where I'll find myself. You know. That's where I'll find rest and answers. I'll find love in Tulum, right? I'll find inner peace. And, um, yeah, and I, I just remember, like, uh, a while back, like, everybody was going to Tulum, and everybody's still going to Tulum, and I bet it's an awesome place, and I, I want to go to Tulum, right? But, like, how do I even know where Tulum is, right? Like, it's, by the way, it's like a small, like, uh, like spot in Mexico, right? Like a... Uh, Historically, a fishing village in Mexico, Tulum. I've read the Wikipedia page. (laughs) Um, That's how I vacation there in my mind. (laughs) So, um, And yeah, and now probably as I'm describing that, you're just like, maybe I want to go to Tulum too, right? Where's Tulum? I need to know about Tulum, right? Um, And we think like maybe there's something there that like some new beautiful experience of life that like we're missing out on. And this is the fantasy. This is the fantasy that, like, by accumulating more stuff, more beautiful experiences floating in caverns, right? Like, maybe that's where we're going to find the stuff that we're searching for, and that, it just does not answer what we're looking for. It doesn't care for the needs of our soul. And um, I'm going to make two, two, like, strong claims here that, like, I really, really hope you hear Because I think these are some strongholds that exist, uh, you know, in our city, like in, in American culture, some ways that we tend to think. And first, I want to call out, having more will do nothing for people who believe they will never have enough, all right? Getting more stuff, if we believe we'll never have enough, right? It doesn't matter how much stuff we get, right? Having more will do nothing for people who believe they will never have enough. And, you know, like, I, like, I'm, like, feeling my words right now as I'm saying this. I want to tear up. Like, why am I saying this right now? But it's true. Like, having more, it's not going to take care of it. And the deep internal itch of a scarcity mindset, it cannot be scratched. And not only this, I think that here's the kicker. Here's the kicker, all right? Becoming more will do nothing for people who believe they are not enough, All right? Becoming more will do nothing for people who believe they are not enough, All right? So if we live in this scarce understanding of who we are, there's no amount of self-improvement that will account for that. And self-improvement, like, it, it's a myth, but it's enticing one because it's, it's partly true. There's meaning in growth. growth. There's meaning in developing and, and finding more and enjoying it, right? But how does that actually work? In God's understanding of the world, like it's, he has a provision for how this works, right? And it can't be gamed. Instead, it's about living connected to him. It's not about exercising. It's not about eating right. Uh, those are those the things are like important, too. It's not about like taking probiotics or like using the right essential oil combination. Yeah, some people laugh because you're like, "Oh, that's me, you <laughs> Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, I'm the, I, I do the take pro- probiotics thing. like maybe that will like set my gut up to be like a better human being, right? Um, and it 's not about like doing stuff in order for us to improve and like become like excellent. instead, I believe the provision that God has is uh, is a gift of grace, and we 're going to get back to this how that works in a little bit, but mostly, I want us to like really realize that. The system of accumulating and thinking I'm not enough and I don't have enough, it is rigged for failure. Um, We can't get it, we can't make it happen. We really need God. We need his community that is similarly committed to truthfulness, committed to generosity and contentment to answer for what can be an eclipsing self-interest for us. Um, And how this shows up like in average thought as we're going about our day, we see something happen, uh, we see a guy get mugged on the street, you know, whatever, and we're just like, this has nothing to do with me. Right? Um, These are, this is their problem, it's not mine. Right? Because I've got stuff to do. I'm busy. Like, I've got places to go. Um, And that's the thing that matters. That's the thing that matters. It's not what's going on with another person. There's there's, though, like, in these commandments a communal dimension that's really important. Um, and that is all of these commandments have an object to them. Uh, don't steal from your neighbor. Don't covet your neighbor, right? Like, it's within community and neighborliness that we're going to find some hope. We're going to find some, like, good instruction for stuff that will set us free, set our souls free. And Jesus um, talks all about neighborliness in his parable of the Good Samaritan. And um, I'm gonna paraphrase it. it's from Luke 10, right? Um, And the way the parable goes is Jesus is um, telling a story of a man who is mugged on the street and left for dead, right? He's beat up, he's jumped, he's left for dead. And all these people keep walking by him, good people, holy people, right? Um, and they just keep going. But then a good Samaritan, and by the way, a Samaritan is a, um, is kind of like a, an ethnic group in uh, the first century, right? So they're, they're a group of people who weren't Jewish, but they had some connection to like Jewish tradition, but they weren't fully Jewish, they're kind of like other right Um, and the good Samaritan is uh, the one who looks at this man on the side of the road left for dead and has compassion and he takes this man he like takes him to the nearest and is just like hey I'm gonna like fit the bill for this guy's health this guy's recovery so whatever it takes lodging medical support, whatever it is, I'm paying for it, don't worry about it, right? And Jesus gives this parable as an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And he goes on to say, Jesus is like, "Um, who shows himself to be a neighbor? It's the good Samaritan. It's the person who has compassion on the one in need, right? And This is like what makes, oh man, what makes being a follower of Jesus so beautiful in my opinion is that Jesus sets a pretty high bar for what life could be. He sets like a beautiful aspiration of what it could be, and we need his help to reach it, but that high bar is the love of our neighbors and a world where neighbors love one another. Um... He says that the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not do harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Again, all of these commands that are like not stealing, not murdering, over here, like don't do this stuff, it's setting up, its trajectory is fulfilled in being people who are loving people, right, and just committed to loving our neighbors. And doing so, we get to live in a gospel reality, conscious of God's goodness, God's grace, God's love, and living life as it truly is, which is like life is a really precious gift, That God has given us. Um, Jesus says that he came to give life abundantly, life fully, right? Like this like full, like finalized trajectory, like made it their life. That's what Jesus is about for people. And um, he, he uniquely like lives that kind of life. Like it's pretty remarkable how he lives. He's I mean, people thought he was wild in his time. Like, like wait, you mean you just kind of like walk around and with a t- group of 12 people and like, <laughs> like eat off the land and like sleep outside? Like that's what you do, for real? Like, but Jesus was marching to the beat of his own drum, right? Like he, he was just living according to a different groove. Like he was following that, right? And that is one, rather than scarcity, abundance, Right? There's provision everywhere, Jesus says. Like, oh, you know what? What am I looking for? Oh, it's probably up in the mountains, right? Where I'm going to go, like, pray until I fall asleep, right? Like, that's, for Jesus, that's his way of living. And that is what makes Jesus a deliverer, too. Um, In fact, did you guys know that the name Jesus uh, comes from Joshua? That's, like, the Jewish name, uh, Yeshua, which means deliver, right? So, like, Jesus is part and parcel of, like, this whole project of deliverance. Like, he is the deliverer, right? Yep. And he lived in such abundance and showed the way, showed the way to live in such abundance that he was just like, you know what, I will empty my life and give it to people. And he, he's, like, so committed and knows that he has abundant life that he's like, you know what, I'm willing to die for people because he knows he's still going to have life <laughs> And he did, right? Like, he was resurrected. He just still had life, right? There's still more life for him. And that's what we get to live in. That is the grace that we live in, that there's that kind of love that has existed. And now we get to, like, follow that lead. So it makes me wonder, like, what would living together in this abundant reality look like? And... Um, why not look at the modern day saint Mr. Rogers um I, I watched uh won't You be My Neighbor" a few weeks ago, and it's just like a room full of like grown men crying. I, I love it. <laughs> it was so good, just a bunch of yeah he he melts hearts and um and i was I was watching the movie. I was reminded of a um of an article that like. Keeps making the rounds constantly, Esquire magazine made like a strong investment, you know, in their November 1998 issue. Uh, In the article, um, Can You Say Hero, Hero?" that's what it's called. So, read it, as I told all my friends when I first read it, like, read it in a dark room, bring tissues, right? Um, And here's a little glimpse into the life of Mr. Rogers that I think is beautiful, and this is what it looks like, right? To to live in this sort of abundance in connection to our neighbors. And here's how it looked for him. The writer says, Once upon a time, a little boy with a big sword went into battle against Mr. Rogers. Or maybe, if the truth be told, Mr. Rogers went into a battle against a little boy with a big sword. For Mr. Rogers didn't like the big sword. It's one of those swords that really isn't a sword at all. It was a big plastic contraption with lights and sound effects, and it was the kind of sword used in defense of the universe by the heroes of the television shows that the little boy liked to watch. The little boy with the big sword did not watch Mr. Rogers. In fact, the little boy didn't know who Mr. Rogers was. And so when Mr. Rogers knelt down in front of him, the little boy looked past him and through him. And when Mr. Rogers says, uh, just imagine his voice, like gentle, sweet, warm. Oh my, that's a big sword you have. And the boy didn't answer. And finally, his mother got embarrassed and said, oh, honey, come on, that's Mr. Rogers, and felt his head for a fever. Like, is something wrong with my kid? Of course, she knew who Mr. Rogers was because she had grown up with him, and she knew that he was good for her son, and so now her little zombie-eyed blonde boy, she apologized, saying to Mr. Rogers that she knew he was in a rush, that she knew he was here in Penn Station, taping his program, and that her son usually wasn't like this. He was probably just tired or something. Except that Mr. Rogers wasn't going anywhere. Yes, sure, he was taping, and right there in Penn Station in New York City were rings of other children wiggling in wait for him. But right now, his patient gray eyes were fixed on the little boy with the big sword. And so he stayed there, on one knee, until the little boy's eyes finally focused on Mr. Rogers. And the boy said, it's not a sword, it's a death ray. A death ray. And so now, encouraged, mommy said, do you want to give Mr. Rogers a hug, honey? But the boy was shaking his head no, and Mr. Rogers was sneaking his face past the big sword and the armor of the little boy's eyes and whispering something in his ears, something that, while not changing his mind about the hug, made the little boy look at Mr. Rogers in a new way, with the eyes of a child at last, and nod his head, yes. The writer says, "Um, we were heading back to his apartment in a taxi when I asked him what he had said, and Mr. Rogers said, oh, I just knew that whenever you see a little boy carrying something like that, it means that he wants to show people that he's strong on the outside. I just wanted to let him know that he was strong on the inside too. And so that's what I told him. I said, do you know that you're strong on the inside too? Maybe it was something you needed to hear. God sees through the outside and into the heart. He sees through our defenses, he sees through our bitterness, whatever it might be. And then he, he names us. He names us something good. In order to bring it to life, he names us his children. He names us loved. He names freedom over enslaved people. He names truthfulness to liars, generosity to hoarders and and stealers. He names contentment and gratitude into our lives when we covet. And by naming that in us, he makes us that. Little by little, it slowly unfolds, but it's happened. It has already happened spiritually. And so what difference would this make in our community? Like, we are a community seeking renewal, right? Following Jesus to seek renewal in this city. And I can think of just a few few different ways that this could take shape. So if we're committed to truthfulness, um, we can have a non-pretentious commitment to seeking and speaking God's loving truth, all right? Um, I wanted to give the caveat non-pretentious because, like, Sometimes, like, when we claim to be speaking the truth or something, we're mostly just, like, trying to prove ourselves right or prove other people wrong, right? But instead, to non-pretentiously be committed to speaking truth, God's loving truth into people's lives. And, you know, like, in your community group, in our church, like, with your roommates or whatever, to, like, name the true good things that God has named of us to one another, right? And to, like, encourage each other in that. Second, I think this uh, scripture invites us into generosity and sacrificial giving, right? Um, I think especially for people who are poor or marginalized or who have less, right? The people left for dead on the side of the road, right? These are people that we get to sacrificially and generously give to. And finally, I think one of the things that might be most difficult for us is to not live into covetousness, but instead to live into contentment and gratitude as a community. Um, to not get caught up into some consumeristic nonsense of, uh, I should have this thing that I saw an ad for on Instagram, or um, uh, I, you know, I, I feel like this is one that's really big in San Francisco, like, I should own a home. Um, like because it's the American dream, you know, like whatever that means, right? Like the American dream says I'm supposed to own a home and now I am comparing myself to the fact that I don't own a home yet and that feels like a crippling reality. Maybe I never will living in this city. And I want to speak contentment and gratitude into our lives in place of that, right? Um, We are truly blessed. And maybe eventually that'll happen for some of us. Sure, maybe not. But to be free from the rat race that is like, I need to have more money, more stuff, get that home, get that person, right? Whatever it might be, to be content and grateful with the state of life that we're in. Let's pray. So God... I appreciate your heart that is for um, bringing your people into a life that is abundantly full. And no matter how much or how little we have, we have all we need in you. And so God, we're grateful. Thank you. Uh, And God, would you just bring to mind the ways that maybe we um, tend to wish that we had more or um, compare ourselves to people, find ourselves lacking, have some uh, long-standing desire that we find ourselves coveting other people for, wishing that we had what they had. Just bring those things to mind for us, God. And now Jesus. We bring all of these things to you. And we trust you with them, God. We surrender them to you. And God, would you please, 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 Lord, take me and my brothers and sisters in this church off of the, uh, the hamster wheel that is consumerism and coveting and a belief that we don't have enough and are not enough. And we open to what you have to say instead, Jesus. You have considered us lovable to the point of giving your life. You have named us a free people. So thank you, God. Amen.